This piece has been brought to you by Bonnie Plants, bonnieplants.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Okay then, yes siree, it's Monday, it's 12 o'clock, and it's time for Guess What? <laughs> What's the name of my show again? Oh, yeah, What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, we're going to be talking in a few minutes with uh, Sandy McLeod, who directed a fantastic documentary called Seeds of Time. But before we get to Sandy, we're going to talk first about my joys and sorrows. Now, I know that this week we have all been mourning the loss of the wonderful artist formerly known as Prince. Um, I will not favor you with a karaoke version of Kiss, as I did last night uh, at a friend's birthday party. (laughs) But I know that we all share uh, that terrible moment of... um, you know, of, of sadness. And I can only say that I'm incredibly glad that I am not a rock and roll musician because apparently this year, uh, someone's got the, the stink eye on them because they'd be dropping like flies, man. It's really painful. All of my childhood or teenage and early life heroes are, are, are going away. Is it because I'm getting old? I think maybe, but it certainly was way before uh, Prince's time. That's for sure. Um, and, and on the joyful side of things, I just want you all to know that uh, black soldier flies are beginning to get much more attention as a livestock feed uh, alternative. And if you happen to feel like scrolling back through my podcasts uh, two years ago, I did an episode about a company in South Africa uh, that is breeding livestock, uh, sorry, that is breeding um, black soldier flies. Uh, and feeding the larvae to poultry and to fish as an alternative to grains such as corn. Consider what a great burden that would be off of our food system. And um, just want to point out, episode number 149, two years ago, finger on the pulse, baby. Huh? Finger on the pulse. I am there. Uh, In other news, um, I want to say I, I've completed the manuscript for a book, which has been uh, joyfully accepted by my publisher, Reaction Books in the UK. Um, my editor, Andy Smith, who was actually on this show a couple of weeks ago, it's not too much nepotism there, I promise. Um, anyway, Andy was on and, and he, uh, he read the manuscript, being my editor and everything, and he said, what's your beef with the Chinese? You're always picking on the Chinese. Well, I'm not picking on the Chinese. I, I'm, I'm really actually full of admiration for how smart they are and how prescient and how well-planned they are for the future and uh, feeding their population, which seems to be something that our own country uh, is failing to do in a kind of epic way. Um, but to make my point, um, just in the past week, <clears throat> there were two major stories about Chinese acquisitions of agricultural assets. The first one was that China snapped up all four uh, processing plants Uh, owned by the Brazilian meat processor Marfrig in Argentina. Four plants. That's a lot of processing power. And secondly, and this really surprised me, a Chinese consortium has purchased a 30,000-square-mile parcel from the legendary Kidman Ranch, which is one of the largest uh, single-owned private ranches in the world. I think it is something like 108,000 square miles. Um, It's Anyway, this particular parcel is the size of Ireland, Okay, Um, 
And they're buying the cattle that go with it. And so <clears throat> what they had to do to do that, because last year somebody tried to, the Chinese tried to buy the whole Kidman Ranch, and the government put the kibosh on that because it was part of it was quite close to a, um, a weapons testing area, if I remember correctly. Um, and so then once the Australians kind of looked at that deal, they put the kibosh on that, and then they enacted some laws around allowing foreign nationals to buy up agricultural assets. Well, what the Chinese have done very cleverly is team up with an Australian firm. And so they're working with, they have, you know, sort of a 60-40 split with an Australian firm, which is going to, quote unquote, help them run this this parcel of land along with all the cattle on it. But, um, you know, the point is, is that we should all, like the Chinese, be thinking about future food security and, you know, managing our own assets better. Uh, and protecting our own assets better from a country like China that has a very large projected population and is is busily snapping up acquisitions all over the world. Um, and so it's not that they're bad for doing it. It's they're smart for doing it. What's bad is when you're stupid enough to be the person who sells those agricultural assets. And remember, by the way, that they also recently purchased Syngenta. Uh, which is one of the top three seed companies in the world, a Swiss-owned firm um, with with major, major um, presence here in the United States. Um, so anyway, I'm saying that we should be enacting laws in our own country to protect our agricultural assets, just as other countries should be doing the same for themselves. Um, but that ain't happening. And uh, in the meantime, the Chinese are making hay while the sun shines. Um, and then my next sort of, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure whether this comes into a joy or a sorrow category, um, this was just a little squib that I noticed. The Japanese agricultural minister has announced plans to invest $36 million in the coming year into farm auto- automation and developing robots uh, to harvest in order to replace their aging farm labor resources because they don't have enough people to be able to take over uh, farm labor and they don't have the ready supply of immigrants that we do that they can mistreat um, pay slave wages to and otherwise abuse. Um, so so they are instead developing a, a mechanical uh, uh, workforce, which I think is, I guess, pretty smart. They even have one that can sort overripe peaches from just ripe peaches when they're harvesting. I think that's pretty cool. Only the Japanese would think of that. And then um, lastly, we'll finish up with just a moment of joy. Because even though, and this is a personal a personal joy, even though I am totally covered with poison ivy, and I am not kidding you, I literally have it from my fingertips to my armpits, um, I had an amazing week of cutting brush up at my homestead in Rhode Island, and I now possess a seven-pound battery-operated chainsaw of my very own, and dainty and ladylike as only I can be. I will be affecting some major changes on my universe with this baby. So that is my joy for the week. And um, (laughs) I get the high five from Jack. And uh, let's take a quick moment to uh, do a sponsor drop. And then we'll be right back with Sandy McLeod, the director of Seeds of Time. It's not just your garden, it's the way you live. And there's so much to know, but you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? 
get homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. One and only Dave Arnold brings the noise to Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday on Cooking Issues. Coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. If the bomb was going to drop and you only had 15 minutes, which is like, I can, I can make a sandwich in 15 minutes. You'd be eating a sandwich. I'd kiss my wife, make a sandwich. If you believe that it's all about to be over, why eat healthy? not a freaking Neanderthal. I like a tempered ice cream sandwich. But it's the only way to get around it if you're a party master because you, you're going to wind up, like your kitchen's going to fill with dishes. And is Some there... people have commercial dishwashers in their house. Who? I've seen them. Who? I've seen them. Who? <laughs> really rich people. <laughs> For more mile-a-minute knowledge from Dave and the crew, listen to Cooking Issues, available on Heritage Radio Network, iTunes, and Stitcher. Oh, man, I second that emotion. Dave Arnold is second to none. He is the bomb. Uh, Welcome to the show, Sandy McLeod. Uh, Let me just read your bio here. Sandy is an Academy uh, Award-nominated independent filmmaker. Her directorial debut was in music videos when she directed a series for VH1 called The 60s. Her next film was Doll Day Afternoon, a short film she directed for Saturday Night Live. She worked with uh, Jordan Cronenweth and Jonathan Demme on Stop Making Sense. Um, that was the talking heads for those of you who are too young to remember. Uh, then she conceptualized and directed a talking heads music video, which is now part of the permanent collection in New York's museum of modern art. Uh, her next project was an AIDS music video that she directed also part of MoMA's permanent collection. She was the production designer of swimming to Cambodia, a one man show by the late lamented Spalding gray, a fellow Rhode Islander. Um, uh, further collaboration with Jonathan Demi resulted in a documentary called Haiti dreams of democracy. She also directed an Academy Award-nominated short documentary called Asylum, a film about Ghanaian women, a Ghanaian woman who sought political asylum in the United States to escape female genital mutilation. Ew. And Seeds of Time is her first feature-length documentary film and the subject of our discussion today. Welcome to the show, Sandy. Thanks a lot for joining me. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Sandy, that's a, that's a fascinating segue that you made from doing music videos with the talking heads to doing, you know... Uh, you know, activist uh, video or activist films, such as the one about um, such as Asylum, for example, which must have been pretty painful to make. Um, Tell me about that. How did you make that transition? Um, Well, (laughs) I I somehow, um, it seems no matter how I live my life, that I managed to dip my toes in some uh, political snafuzzles. And (laughs) even though I was doing uh, Talking Heads music videos, um, there were a couple of them uh, uh, that actually were taken off the air by MTV because of things that we said in them. Really? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, they had asked us to change a few things, and we didn't. And what we ended up doing was um, making them. There were little blurbs. They were little blurbs from Harper's Index. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they have mm. wonderful. I don't think so. Wonderful data on crazy things like how many machine guns do Americans own? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, and we would. We Sounds would like I would really those, like that. 
interstitially in the music video and one of them that I did. And what we did was we shortened them to, to the point where they were almost subliminal, hoping that people would then record the video and be able to look at it and read them more carefully, uh-huh. um, which was acceptable to MTV at the time. So it seems like no matter what I do, what, what I did, I somehow managed to step in it. And so I figured, <laughs> why not just go for it? <laughs> yeah, right. Good for you. I think it's great. I mean, you have a wonderful CV. That's fantastic. Um, and so tell me, how did you get involved in Seeds of Time? I read an article in The New Yorker about Carrie Fowler, and um, I, I, you know, agriculture, as we know it, is, is sort of depressing, and I, yeah. I'm, I'm very concerned about how we're going to be able to feed ourselves in the future because we're because of the way we're farming. And right. um, when I read about Carrie, I, first of all, I never realized the, the loss of diversity that we suffered, have suffered mm-hmm. in agriculture. I never realized how profound that was. Um, but I was really impressed by the fact that here was a sort of catastrophic thing that had been happening. And one person saw it and brought it to the to, to, to worldwide attention and was able to do something about it mm-hmm. um, that affects every single plate on this planet. Right, right. And I thought, you know, we need more stories where people em- can empower themselves to do this kind of thing because, uh, you know, it, it seems so uh, hopeless, frankly, sometimes, uh, that I felt that it would really be worth telling uh, Carrie's story because he... He pulled it off, you know. Yeah. He was able to do it. He and, is remarkable. Um, well, well to, to talk just briefly about that mass crop extinction, um, why don't you give us an idea of what you're talking about there? Because I don't think most people realize uh, just how much we have winnowed down the cultivated uh, you know, crops that we use uh, right. as opposed to what was available originally. And also, why, why, would, why, why would we do that? Like, I mean, I know why, but maybe not everybody else does. You know right. what I mean, like, why, why is that an issue? Um, so, so we've been, we've been um, farming for 10,000 years. And during that time, we created a tremendous amount of diversity um, I forget. I think there was something like at one time 150 different kinds of celery, you know, and now there are three. Right. Um, and that that's sort of across the board. We didn't ever have an exact head count of how many we had, but it, we began to realize in the 50s and 60s when industrial farming really took hold that we were that no one was growing out certain seeds that the farmer, the smallholder farmer, had saved had been passed uh, down generation after generation. And we had tremendous diversity in the United States because we had such an immigrant population. Mm-hmm. They would bring their seeds over here as, a, as, as the one thing they could carry to sort of, uh, you know, hold their connection to, to their past. And so um, when we started buying up these small farms and uh, big ag took over, those seeds were no longer planted. And mm-hmm. during that time, we lost somewhere between 93 and 97% wow. of all the food variety that we once had. Right. That's pretty stunning. It's pretty stunning. Yeah. So, um, so you know, people who worked in that field were aware of it, but no one knew quite what to do of it, with it. And so 
um, there are seed banks all over the world. We have a national seed bank in uh, the United States, which unfortunately has suffered tremendous uh, cutbacks recently mm-hmm. uh, because politicians generally don't look at the big picture. They look at you know what's going to be uh, looking good for them at the end of their term. And mm-hmm. seed banks are long-term propositions, and uh, and we don't really feel the effects of this kind of thing for years and years, and sometimes until it's too late. So a lot of seed banks have been lost um, yeah. over the years, too. And with with that, of course, those, those important collections. So Carrie had this idea, um, along with the, the uh, Swedish government, uh, the no, I'm sorry, Norwegian, Norwegian government, yeah. uh, to, um, to try and find a safe haven for these seeds that would be sustainable, that wouldn't require a huge amount of money, and that would save the seeds in perpetuity, so for generations to come. And they did this with a rather small investment, really, when you consider the impact of $9 million to build this vault in Svalbard. Um, which is one of the coldest places I've ever been to. Yeah, I, was, I really want you to describe what it was like, because Svalbard is above the Arctic Circle yes. in Norway, and um, it's, you know, the conditions, climate conditions are really harsh. It's really windy, as I recall. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it can be it can be quite windy, and, of course, wind chill there is a whole other meaning. It was 50 below when oh I was there. Um, and it's it's... Uh, it sounds really strange, but after shooting outside and walking into the vault, which is 30 below, <laughs> I have to say it felt much warmer to me. That's amazing. I know. It is kind of amazing. And so the seeds are stored in Svalbard because even climate change is not going to affect, have an impact on that particular well, location? Is that the theory? Uh, no. Climate, climate change will have an impact a global impact. There's no question about that. But what they did was they selected a place that could be cold enough to preserve the seeds for a long time, mm-hmm. even if the generators failed. Right. That's a big problem with a lot of the seed vaults in places like Africa, which is where there's some of our greatest diversity, have been lost because generators failed. Yeah. Um, so... So it, it's um, it's cold, permanently cold. Um, also, they they built it into the side of a mountain, so it's protected. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, they also looked at you know what would happen if all the ice melted. If all the ice melted, uh, would the sea rise high enough to um, to cover the vault? And and um, they they are thinking that, that they're high enough that they'll be safe. So, wow. You know, they took everything they could think of into consideration. Now, whether or not in in the history of this planet the seed vault will survive, who knows, because mm-hmm. hopefully it's going to have a long, very long history. Probably longer than human. I um, think so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I do, too. Anyway. Especially the way we're going, exactly. Um, tell me, uh, so how many plant species are preserved there and are are people continuing to contribute to that? It's an ongoing process. Um, the the plant species that are there are all agricultural. Uh huh. 
and um, every major, almost every major collection, I think, except for the Ethiopian collection, is there. Oh wow! Um, I mean, there's still some smaller collections that they that they're negotiating for. Um, even pieces of the, I think, the collection here uh, in the U.S. Uh, is not totally backed up at Svalbard. Um, so. You know, I don't know the exact number, and I just heard Carrie quote it at the Botanical Garden the other day. It's, oh, really? It's it's in the hundreds of thousands, and I can't, and I can't remember exactly the number. Okay, but that gives us an idea. Hundreds of thousands of agricultural crops yes. are preserved in this one area, and they represent many countries around the globe so that, say, in Africa, you need to repopulate a certain type of seed, you will have something with which to start, even if you end up having to hybridize it with something else in order to account for climate resistance or whatever, you know. That's right. How did they coordinate getting so many of the specimens from so many countries? Was it something that, I mean, I know you said that a lot of countries have seed banks, but I'm thinking like, you know, a lot of countries probably don't, I don't know, maybe they... I don't know. How did they do it? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm not going to speculate. Well, I'm going to ask the question. I can tell you that much. <laughs> um, first, they had to all sign off on an, on an international plant uh, uh, treaty. Uh-huh. And, and one of the things that that treaty, uh, International Plant Genetics Treaty, and one of the things that that treaty uh, provided for was that in the event because what used to happen is if a country lost their seeds through some catastrophic event, say yeah. a flood, that in order to repatriate them, they would have to go to all the people, all the different people who had those seeds, which could take years. Right. Meanwhile, you know, that's a lot of Meanwhile, harvest. your population is starving. Yeah. Right. So now, when you sign the International Plant Genetics Treaty, and also the reason why some people haven't signed on, is you have to agree that if there's a catastrophic event, you will repatriate seeds if you're asked um, to the country that's affected. So that's a protection for those countries. But there are some countries who, um, Ethiopia is one that I can think of in particular, that's always, I think, there's always been a bit of a, a sore spot about the fact that coffee started in Ethiopia, and the right. Ethiopians really haven't been able to capitalize on that crop the way they might have had they sort of kept their property rights, kept their intellectual property rights for that huh. those seeds. So, so that, um, that was a very tricky issue, and, uh, but most countries were willing to sign on for the added protection. Sure. And um, and the other thing that people, I think, don't understand about the seed vault is that no one... So those collections are essentially backed up in the vault. They're not just existing in the vault. They're also in those places where those collections are held. Those are duplicate copies. Uh-huh. Um, so, they're, so they're now they're in two places. It's like, you know, it's like backing up your computer. You know, right, you wanna, right. You need to have a, a, a safe copy. Um, so... It, um, it it's it's just an added layer of protection, uh, and it um, it it um, it took I think Carrie almost I want to say thirty years. Wow, it's I sound I think I remember that from watching the film mm-hmm. that it was at least thirty years of interest on his part 
um, you know, and sort of plugging along, trying to uh, make people more aware of the impact of of both uh, loss of diversity in the plant world and also the impact of climate change, which he was obviously more prescient about than many others. And I <clears throat> I wanted to kind of jump ahead to talk about, because um, one of the things that he brings up in the film is he, collect, he connects climate change to crop failures and then crop failures to civil strife. And I wondered if you could um, comment on that just because the film, you made the film in 2014, I think. Mm-hmm. And now it's available on Netflix. That's why you and I are talking, right? Yes, and iTunes <laughs> and Amazon Prime. And Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. Um, so, because um, I do remember when the film came out. I don't know why I didn't interview you then. Um, <laughs> this is totally grist to my mill. I mean, you're absolutely the type of interview I do. Um, and I do a lot of work around animals and diversity of breeds. But mm-hmm. um, in any another case, issue, actually. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Oh, I did the most fascinating. I wrote a book about meat right now. Let's talk about me, Sandy. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I just finished a manuscript about a book about global, uh, you know, industrialized meat production around the world. Mm-hmm. And one of the most interesting aspects I discovered um, or actually delved into was the genetics and the fact that most of the world's uh, livestock breeds are controlled by four companies. And and so there's a lot of parallels between what you guys are trying to fight against and what mm-hmm. the meat world is trying to fight it, against. It, it's the same process. It's, it's the that, same process, yeah. It's, it's the sort of uh, industrialization of those. Yeah. But when you guys started um, working on this film, which was completed in 2014, how much, how much, I feel like climate change awareness or climate change acceptance has accelerated just in the last year or year and a half. And I, I I get, I have the feeling like in 2014, when this film came out, that there wasn't as much of a sense of urgency around the issue. Would you agree? And then can you talk a little bit about the civil strife part of it? No, in fact, when I was making the film, I, um... I decide. I sort of made the decision that I, I had heard enough at that point myself that I believe that climate change was a kind of no-brainer. Yeah. Um, and I and I refused to deal in the film with whether or not it was a real issue. I just took it as a real issue, as did Carrie, as do most people who understand agriculture. I think. Right. Um, um, I'm the State Department included. Um, and realized, you know, how civilizations rise and fall on their ability to um, meet the needs of the food needs of their populations. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, you know, a, a lot of people now are seeing, uh, you know, what's happening in the Middle East as being prompted by that, which was in that connection right. was made early on. So it's a very real... Um, threat, and the more we winnow down our water resources and our soil erosion and all these things that all these sort of assaults that um, that, as Carrie says in the film, can create a perfect storm mm-hmm. for this kind of scenario, uh, the more at risk we are, and um, and. You know, I hate to put the finger on one thing, but one of the main things that I see it really is industrial ag. You know, oh yeah, we took the we took the small farmer out of the equation. We lost our connection to food. You know, that was around TV dinner time and all that sort yep. of thing. And in losing that connection, 
you know, we lost a big part of, I think, what should be actually sort of sacred to us, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we need it back, not just for our bellies, but also for our souls, I think. So it's, it's, a, it's something that um, when I really understood the big picture, I thought, you know, I, I really wanted to spend time and see if I could get the story right because it would in that story it contain, there's so much contained in that one story. Yes, I agree absolutely. Um, I I I wanted to uh, also address. Um, you had some really nice. I a long time ago, Jack. You remember when? Remember when I interviewed that guy Peter Pringle, and he wrote a book oh, called sure, The Murder yeah. of Nak, of uh, Nikolai Vavilov. Yep. Did you read that, Sandy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I interviewed him right after that book came out. It was one of the first shows I did for the network. So it's easily six, seven years ago. And um, and you had a lot of, of really interesting footage from the Vavilov Institute, which I thought, because he died in disgrace in jail, I thought that they had just basically discarded the results of all of his labor. But instead, they didn't. So can you tell us a little bit about him? Because he was sure. such an inter- interesting character. Well, he was really one of the first people to realize the uh, what the impact of industrial farming was going to be. And this is like it, we're talking the 20s and 30s. Um, yeah. And he began to travel around the world and start to collect this diversity and had um, the greatest collection of diversity in the world in uh, St. Petersburg, Russia. Right. Uh, unfortunately, he was on the wrong side of the line for Lenin, and um, uh, because he was a world figure uh, and a, and part of the bourgeoisie, uh, he was imprisoned and and ironically enough for a man who probably has done as much to feed the world as anyone uh, starved to death in prison. Oh. Um, but you know. That collection was held high because after the war, uh, they needed those seeds to start feeding what was already a starving population. So the collection for a long time was very highly prized and very carefully kept. But when I was there, um, uh, I guess it was 2013, uh, the collection was not only um, in pretty bad shape, uh, they were starting to sell off um, parts of the uh, fields where they grow out the seeds um, to developers. Oh, wow. Um, no kidding. Because the land, which had been set aside during Davilov's time, uh, was becoming so valuable that these developers wanted to put condominiums and so forth on it. Oh. And the Russian government under Putin doesn't really value this collection as much as they value the real estate. So now not only uh, have they lost a, a lot of those fields, they are probably going to lose that place that I shot in. Uh, when I was there, all the people who worked there um, could not make a living by working there. They had to have other jobs. Oh, no way, really? Yeah, the, 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 the collection was not um, funded enough uh, to support their services, really. So Incredible. Their, their, their um, lifestyle. So 
Um, so these guys were really uh, heroes um, to be doing this for the Russian people. But um, I understand since then that uh, there was interest in the building that the Vavilov Center is in and that they may actually lose that building and therefore probably the collection will be lost. Well, it looked from the film like the seed collection is certainly not being uh, preserved uh, in any sort of cryovacked um, no. cold storage. I no, mean, it was like you, you showed footage of like these old folders of dried up, you know, stems and leaves and seeds. And, you know, it was very archaic looking. Um, well, yeah. And the, they have some cryo preservation there, which was not uh, always functional. Um, but the and it's a the real tragedy is a lot of those seeds are not grown in any farmer's field. So yeah, that diversity will be lost along with that collection. And although they have backed up some of it with Svalbard, um, not nearly all of it. I forget. I think Carrie says in the film, is it like a third of the collection maybe has been backed up there. Something like that, yeah. But I, I found that book incredibly moving. I loved it. And I really didn't know anything because I just started doing this show and I really didn't know anything about agriculture or seed banking. I knew about the Seed Savers Exchange, which we're going to talk about in a second. But um, but I just I found that whole story so extraordinary because it was two different uh, theories of agriculture uh, competing and, um, you know, the other guy won, and that's how it turned out that Vavilov uh, wound up in prison, as I recall. But he, he didn't just stay in, in the Soviet Union or what was the Soviet Union. I mean, he traveled really all over Western Europe and, and North Africa, didn't he? And collected United States. The United yeah. States. He collected he seeds from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And, he uh, saved seeds, actually, that eventually were repatriated to us. Oh, is that right? Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. It was such a great story. It was a wonderful book. I wish it had gotten more attention. Um, but, you know, anyway, maybe it will now after this. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, what, like the big animal, just to jump back to the big animal genetics companies that I that I talked about a few minutes ago. A lot of them are recognizing the value of heritage breeds. And um, there's a company in Holland called Hendrix, uh, which is one of the four big companies, and they, they uh, specialize in chickens, uh, layers and broilers, uh, but especially layers. And, um, and they have actually started their own heritage breed seed bank, as it were. Um, and do you think that Monsanto or Syngenta or DuPont are doing the same thing? Are they collecting seeds to work with their, you know, genetically modified organisms? I mean, well, they they need you know they need the genetic diversity, they do. just like everyone else does, so that they can uh, put together the seeds with the proper whatever it is, drought resistance or heat tolerance or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure they do. I don't know that much about them, um, but they certainly have the resources. That. Yeah, I mean, I would think they would be very active in this field. It's sort of interesting to me that they're not. I mean, I, I think that agricultural universities, um, you know, land extension schools and all of that stuff have been um, highly corrupted by big agricultural industri- inter- interests. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why a lot of this this kind of sort of almost, uh, you want to call it almost folklore or, you know, heritage information, historical information about crops is, is not being um, successfully sold to students or even being studied 
you know, significantly. Well, most of the most of the universities now are funded by those companies. Yeah, exactly. I money, mean, so. if you're a scientist and you want a grant, you're not going to get a grant from a national, you know, from a public federally funded grant organization. Right. You're going to get it from Monsanto. And if you want to be a plant breeder, and yeah. the world is woefully low on plant breeders. Is that right, like, Sandy? I didn't know that. There's only, I forget um, the number, but it's like six plant breeders who deal with a banana. Right. Um, you know, that's the world supply of bananas. Um, and I, there probably are very few who work with sorghum or, you know, some of the crops that are so important in um, developing countries. Mm-hmm. Um, so plant breeders, I mean, if, if there are any younger people out there who are interested in this area at all? Um, the world is woefully short on plant breeders and people who can help us develop the new varieties that we're going to need in the future to deal with some of the things that are happening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's uh, let's talk for a minute because we're going to have to wrap this up in a couple minutes. Um, let's talk a little bit about. Um, we didn't mention the Iowa Seed Savers Exchange. Now, that's something that people can be involved in on a, on a, mac, on a micro level. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an organization that started out in Iowa, but actually I think all 50 states participate, don't they? Um, I, you know, they have a huge catalog of people that they work with that mm-hmm. uh, help them save seeds and bring new seeds uh, into the fold uh, uh, from all over the place. And um, in the film, there's... Uh, one uh, one example of um, their annual seed savers uh, exchange event where people come together and and share seeds and you know what they're really sharing is a great tomato or yeah uh, the best watermelon you ever had or an onion that you've never tasted uh, which is you know which is um, which is really uh, exciting and tasty and um unfortunately when i went there it seemed to me that most of those people were over the age of 40 it looked that way to me (laughs) yeah so i'm hoping that you know it seems to me more and more i hear about younger people getting interested in in food and farming and um i think that's happening but i mean as we both know and as many of the listeners um right now know uh, the median age of a farmer in the United States is like 53. I mean, it's come down from 57. That's a well, good thing. Well, I learned, uh, I was at a conference in San Francisco last week, an amazing conference called The True Cost of American Food. Oh, I wish I could have gone to that. Yeah, I read about that. And fascinating. Yeah, and, I um, And some really interesting people there. But one of the things, oh, I just forgot what I was going to say, Kathy. One of the things. Katie. Talking, huh? Katie. Katie. Yeah. Um. One of the things that they were talking oh about was that in Iowa, 55% of the land is owned by farmers over 75 years old. Wow. So how about that? But a lot of the land in Iowa is now owned by very large agricultural concerns because they're such well, a big... Well, right? and the scary thing is probably that, 50, that 55% land, when it comes up for sale, will also be... There's a possibility it'd also be grabbed by big ag. Oh yeah. Um, but wouldn't it be great if we could start to get it back to smallholder farmers and figure out a way to make that work again? 
Yeah, I mean, there should be a way, there should be sort of almost a homesteading movement, I mean, for, you know, for old, for farmers who want to, um, you know, get out of the business but don't want to see their land taken by large agricultural concerns, you mm-hmm. know, set up some sort of government funding where you, you, you could, you get a loan from the government to start your farm and you have 10 years to pay it off and then you own the land, something right. like that. Remember, I right. mean, the Homestead Act was great. That was a big deal. Really helped this country. So, um, what are we doing with the film? We're going to promote the film right now. Tell me about it. People can see it on Netflix. It's called Seeds of Time. There's a That's website. Right. What's it's your on Twitter Amazon handle? Prime and iTunes. And um, uh, we actually just showed it at the New York Botanical Gardens on Earth Day. Oh, good. Um, it's uh, it's it's a it's a really good film for anyone who's interested in the foundation of agriculture and sort of uh, a story about one person who was able to do a lot um, to help um, help make sure that there's, there's going to be some diversity on our plates. Right. But also I think in the, on the, on the bigger scale, I, I also felt like um, what it was was also a, to create an understanding around um, how agriculture has changed and what we are losing and why we need to maintain crop diversity, plant diversity, uh, in order to manage uh, the impacts of climate change going forward. And that's, I think that's, that to me, that was the big takeaway message. And also the fact that climate change is not something that we speculate on anymore. It's, it's here, it's happening. And when you talk to farmers around the world, really, mm-hmm. they're all going to tell you the same thing. Yes, it's hotter. Or yes, we get more rain than we used to, or we don't get enough rain or, you know, however it works for them in their macro microclimate. Right. I you mean, know. in the film, we use the example of these Peruvian farmers. That's right. I, I meant to talk about them, and, I, and I, I got sidetracked. But that was a very interesting part of the film, actually. And they said – I wanted to clarify something now that, now that we're still talking. Um, no, <laughs> but let's – they had they, – they, they mentioned something, and I wasn't sure I completely understood this, about how they had used a quote-unquote improved potato, which had ultimately failed – for them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then they had had to go back to you know sort of reviving these older heirloom varietals. Can you just you know quickly unpack that because that was quite interesting? So you're saying that in the film you were saying that they used, like say, uh, you know, um, an industrial yes, potato. they used essentially the potatoes that we eat. Uh-huh. Um, so so uh, Peru is the um, is the origin of the potatoes. Right. The greatest diversity of potato grows in Peru. And these farmers have now access to 1,800 varieties of potato and grow them out. But before that, during the war, during the Shining Path, yeah. uh, these guys in the Sacred Valley lost their land. And um, they were, um, and they lost their, their crops. And so when they finally started trying to Get, get their land and put their lives back together again. They were given uh, potatoes from some American companies like the kind we eat, which uh, were very detrimental to them because they, they didn't hold up well in the climate and they didn't, they weren't nutritious enough. Uh-huh. These are people who eat almost only potatoes for their diet. And while I was there, um, I, were, I ate potatoes, and, I, and it's amazing the different kinds of nutrition they can get by different types of soil and different altitudes that they grow these potatoes in. And Fascinating. Different 
See, I would do very well in Peru because potato is one of my favorite foods. Well, you would love I would love potatoes. It. Yes, I would. Um, Sounds yeah. great. Anyway, Sandy, we have to wrap it up there. But thank you so much for joining me today. And um, do you live in New York? I do. Oh, well, perhaps we will cross paths at some point. But uh, thank you very much for joining me today. And, um, you know, the film is lovely and wonderful and people should see it. It's on Netflix. It's on iTunes. It is on uh, Amazon Prime. And I highly recommend it. Seeds of Time. Thank you very much, Sandy McLeod. Thank you. And thank you to my sponsor, Bonnie Plants. I remembered. And um, thanks, as always, to Jack Inslee, my engineer. See you next week, folks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 